John chapter two, verses 13 to 21. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of courts and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. This is the word of the Lord. It is for you, it is for his church, for the body of Christ, you his sons and daughters. And may it illuminate for you afresh and anew the answer to the deepest questions of our human hearts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So over the last few years, it has never ceased to amaze me the proliferation of a particular genre of television shows that we call reality TV. They are shows supposedly grounded in reality. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but there are a lot of them. But they originated way back with this show called Survivor. Maybe you remember Survivor. In fact, Survivor is still on the air. Uh, They take a group of people to some deserted place and they go through mental and physical challenges. There are alliances, there are betrayals, and people get eliminated until finally, at the end of the show, about, I don't know, 12, 15 episodes, there's a lone survivor. That person wins a million dollars. Yahoo, really big deal. And I watched the first episode, I mean, every time. Watch Survivor. Do you know how many years Survivor has been on television? Yes, you were at the earlier service. <laughs> 22 years. 22 years it's been on. So it's, it's spun off all these other reality TV shows, like The Real Housewives. We have Real Housewives in New York, in LA, in Orange County, in Salt Lake City, in Houston, Dallas, Atlanta. When are we going to have The Real Housewives of Orlando? Because I have some people I want to nominate. We can have a very successful show here. And then we have the other show that people like to gather around and they have dinner together. They get all their friends and they watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette because these are real romantic struggles. These things are really happening in these people's lives. And you kind of step back and my daughter is one of them and she's all into that. And I'm like, honey, that is a sinful trail that leads to nowhere but sometimes she doesn't listen to her dad. But the question remains, what is it about these shows, reality TV, that the American citizen is consuming? Because clearly we're watching or they wouldn't keep making them. Well, researchers have told us why. And it's a single word, authenticity. And I know that most reality shows are not filled with a lot of authenticity, but it's the idea that this is real. 
Because what people want, we are tired, the researchers tell us. We're tired of being fooled. We're tired of being duped. We're tired of being lied to. We're tired of being manipulated. We want something that is authentic, that is real, that is dependable, that we can count on, that is consistent. We want all those things, authenticity, which, oh, by the way, is why I think there are so many people who go to church on Easter Sunday, Maybe a surprise to you. Many of you weren't here last week. <laughs> right? But we come on Easter Sunday because we want to find something, I think, in the wake of all the craziness that we've experienced in the last two years, all the things that are happening in our world, and we've heard about Christianity, we've heard about the person of Jesus, and we wonder, is that real? Is it dependable? Is it authentic? Can I count on it? And... and Let's be honest, I think that's a pretty fair question. Because if you just took somebody kind of off the street, maybe they grew up someplace, you know, a long way from here, and they never even heard of Christianity. And they said, well, tell us about this Christianity thing. And you said, well, there's this guy, and he lived 2,000 years ago, and he did some pretty cool things, but his own people got mad at him, and they had the Romans kill him, and on the third day, they couldn't find his body, and now they say he's God, and millions of people follow him. Most people go, that's crazy. Right, there's no way that's possible. And we have people in our culture today who just dismiss it with a casual wave of the hand. There's no way that's possible. And they intimidate us. And they make us feel like, we don't know how to answer that question. But the answer to all those questions, to its veracity, its trustworthiness, its solidity, it all hinges on Easter morning. It all hinges with what we do with the empty tomb, and we can find those answers absolutely, I believe, in the text that we read from John chapter 2 this morning. Now, it's not a classic Easter text. I realize that. It's not a resurrection story, but it's actually the moment that the Jewish leaders went back to to eventually accuse and try Jesus. Because what happens? Well, it's early in Jesus's ministry. He goes into Jerusalem, and what does he find? The temple has been made a mockery of. They're selling animals. They're exchanging money. And so all of you who think Jesus with his mild-mannered pushover, who was just Mr. Meek and never did anything, and just went around saying, God bless you. No, no. He fashions a whip of cords and he goes crazy in the temple. He's mad. And he takes that cord and he drives all the animals out. And physically, he picks up the tables and turns them over. The money flies everywhere. And he says, get out of here. Because my father's house is not going to be turned into this. And when he said that, my father's house, Jesus declared his godhood. Because who lived in the temple? God. Everybody knew that. And Jesus was declaring, I am the son of God. And so what happens next? Everybody around, all the Jews, all the religious leaders, they said, by what authority? What are you gonna do to prove what you've just said? And guess what they're doing? They're asking the same question that we're asking ourselves this morning. Is this authentic? Are you real? Well, then prove it. Show us how you're the son of God. Prove your Godhood to us. And that's the question that is beating within us. And I think it's the question that Jesus answers with the simple phrase, tear down this temple 
destroy it, and I will rebuild it in three days. Contained in that one sentence are all the answers that we need to have confidence in the authenticity and the historicity, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Number one, Jesus says, destroy this temple. When he said that, he was drawing upon what is beating in the heart of every single human being. It's our search for God. Because remember, temples weren't new in Judaism. The Jews didn't come up with the idea of temples. Temples have been around since the beginning of time. Why? Because human beings have always had a sense of the divine, that there must be a creator God. And so they started making temples because the temples were the places where people went to find this divine, to be in relationship with this being, to try to build this bridge to a being that they knew somehow existed. That's echoing in all of our hearts. Tim Keller puts it this way, every society, every temple had two basic presuppositions. One, there's a God, a divine, an ultimate, whatever you wanna call it, and we need to be in touch with it. And two, you can't just walk up and talk to that divine. There is some gap, some distance that needs to be mediated by doing something. And each temple had a different means of that. So if you go into a Buddhist temple, you're gonna see the dying words of Buddha, strive without ceasing, so we gotta do something. We gotta keep working, gotta keep striving. Go into a Muslim temple, they're gonna tell you you need to follow the five pillars of faith. There's something you have to do, but it's true of every temple. It was even true of Jewish temples. Here's the presence of God, but in order for you to be in touch with him, there are certain things that you have to do. C.S. Lewis gave a, an address to the graduates of Oxford College back in the late 40s in which he said this, the inconsolable secret in every one of us is our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we all now feel cut off. The longing to be on the inside of some door, which we've always seen from the outside. And that longing is no mere neurotic fantasy, but it's the truest index of our real situation. The longing to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality, to be accepted by God. It is the inconsolable secret of every soul. And you see it. Jesus said, destroy the temple, the place where we believe that the divine dwells. That's been true in every society, every culture. Since the dawn of time, there are temples. Why? Because human beings are searching for the divine. We're trying to reach out and bridge this chasm that we believe has somehow cut us off from whoever that is. And for those of you who may not believe that there actually is a God, let me just take us to science for a minute. And just consider one truth, and you don't believe me, Google this when you get home. You don't have to take my word for it. I'm telling you something that's absolute fact. The odds of life existing on this planet, meaning the odds of everything lining up in just exactly the right way at the right time in order to produce everything that is necessary for life to exist and to be sustained is infinitesimally small. The odds of life are one times 10 to a power with so many zeros, I can't even explain the number, but it's analogous to this. It's the same odds as a blindfolded man finding a single marked grain of sand in the Sahara Desert three times in a row. 
It would be the same odds as an abridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a print shop. And so are we really gonna stand here today and say, oh yeah, it's just, it was just chance. And we just got lucky. It just happened. You really, don't go to Vegas. You're gonna lose. Because <laughs> you don't know anything about odds. Don't we think that there's a creator, an intelligent designer? How else did it happen? And if there is an intelligent designer, a creator God, then just what, based on what we know of ourselves, would we not then expect that God to love what he has made and to then try to be in relationship with us? Of course we would, because we know who we are, we who have been made in his image. So Jesus' answer tells us we're searching, we're trying to connect to the divine from whom we have felt cut off all our lives, that thing that we think will satisfy us and restore us and give us the life for which we yearn. But then the second thing Jesus does is his answer is he shows us, I'm the God that you're looking for. I'm the God that people have been going to the temples for all these generations to find. I'm him. How do we know that? Because he predicts the future and then fulfills it. He foreshadows his own demise and resurrection. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'm gonna build it back. But what he was in essence saying to them was, I'm not gonna build back a physical edifice. I'm gonna be the greater temple. I'm gonna be the better temple because I am the God that you seek. And I'm not just a God who will fill by his presence a building. I'm gonna fill the earth. I'm gonna fill your heart. I'm gonna change you and transform you in a way that is holy and right and good. And that's, that's what we long for in this, the answering of this question. In Exodus chapter 40, it says, when the temple was finished, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want a God who is glorious and powerful, who can predict the future and then have that future come true? Who else could do that but God? Who else could be that glorious? We want glory, we want power, because we want to worship a God that we believe can handle our problems and our circumstances and our pains and our confusions. I'm not gonna depend on it unless I know he's authentic and he's trustworthy. And so we look at Jesus, he says, destroy the temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. And he foretells exactly what was gonna happen in two years. Jesus did what he said he was gonna do. And in it, he reveals his glory and people this is not something as you think about the reality of it, the trustworthiness of it, the authenticity of it. This isn't debated by historians and scholars. There's nobody who's debating the existence of Jesus any more than they debate the existence of Buddha or Muhammad. Historians and scholars accept Jesus was a real guy. He lived in human time. He's a historical figure. And yes, he taught in the temple, he did some miracles, all that's corroborated. There are many, many eyewitness accounts. The only thing that people can't make any sense of is what did they do with his body? And so we have to stop in this place and consider the reality. And again, someone can come up to you and they're gonna give you the intellectual wave. Oh, that's, that's just a load of you know what. You, that is not possible. And I have people ask me, they go, David, when someone denies the resurrection and they say Christianity is not true, what do I say? And my answer back is always, well, prove your, prove your hypothesis. You say Christianity is not real. You say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You're in a court of law, prove it. What's your argument? Because they don't have an argument. They just say it's not possible. 
Well, that's not good enough in a court of law. Make them, why, why is the burden always on us? Make them prove their point. But then after you've given them a shot, tell them, you know what? There really are only two options, right? Either Jesus rose from the dead or somebody stole the body. That's it. And please spare me with the hope that they lost track of which grave Jesus was buried in. Okay, whoops, Pilate assigned a whole Roman, you know, brigade of soldiers to guard it. And the Romans were absolutely intent on keeping track of the body. Because if the body disappears, well, the whole thing explodes. And so the Romans didn't take the body. Why would the Romans take the body to perpetuate a myth that they were trying to put down? That makes no sense whatsoever. So then option B is the disciples took it and you go, oh, that makes sense. 11 cowards locked in an upper room somewhere somehow summoned the courage to go outfox the Romans and steal the body, right. And then let's just say they did. Let's say they pulled that off. They steal the body to perpetuate a hoax that brought them what? Untold suffering and imprisonment and torture and horrific death. You actually think all 11 went to their graves for a lie? You think all 11 go to their graves crucified upside down for a hoax? Not a chance. There's no way that's true. And so you look at the preponderance of the evidence and you go, where does it point? The only logical explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, can I prove that to you empirically? Can I prove that to you in a lab somewhere? I can't. So there's always gonna be a step of faith, but where does the evidence point? Are you really gonna, gonna deny the simple step of faith forward when you look at the abyss that is behind you to reject it and the odds of life on the earth and all the other scientific proofs? You really are gonna take that leap backwards to say, oh no, there is no God, Jesus was not real. Or are you simply gonna take the step of faith to which the preponderance of the evidence points? Tomb was empty and it changes everything. But we still have one little problem, don't we? See, in the presupposition, it says there is a divine, but what was the second point? You can't just walk up to him, right? There's some barrier, there's some divide that has to be covered. And this gets to questions of justice. And we don't like to talk about these questions because that violates American cultural theology today. American cultural theology says, oh, God is love. Love wins. Oh, yes, isn't that sweet? Love wins, oh yeah, love wins, really. Because there's a big flaw with love wins. If God just said, God's love is so great, that it's gonna overcome all the bad things and everybody gets in. That just means God winks at sin. God winks at what's wrong and there are no consequences, which means there's no justice. And so everything that's happening in the Ukraine right now, everything that Hitler did, everything that Stalin did, all those things, they never get answered. And essentially what love wins says is that right and wrong don't matter. That God's love is just bigger than that. And if right and wrong don't matter, people then guess what? Nothing matters and everything that you thought to be true about life crumbles and falls apart. You want a God who's just. You want a God who's just because you know it in your heart. Because when you're wrong and when you're violated, what do you want? Justice. There have to be consequences to the things that go wrong. And guess what? We're part of what's wrong. And so if right and wrong do matter, and if part of our relationship with God means that we can't violate his command, that's the distance we have to bridge but it's the beauty of what Jesus said. He said, destroy the temple. He's predicting his own destruction. Jesus says, not only am I the God that you seek, 
but I will provide the very thing which I demand, which is the mitigation of my wrath. And I will stand in the place where you should have stood. I will take the punishment that should have been on you and I will put it on me. First Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's through Christ and his mediation for us. His righteousness is imputed to us by his shed blood on the cross. So when God looks at us, he sees not us, but he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so therefore he calls us brothers with Jesus, co-heirs with the Son of God. What a gift. There was a play in Germany right after the Second World War. It was, came out in the late 40s called The Sign of Jonah. And it was written by a, a playwright named Gunther Rutenborn, if you want to look it up. But the play was about, it was a German man trying to wrestle with the atrocities that his country had committed. And so the characters in this play are going all over the place and they're, they're asking a simple question. They're saying, did you do it? Did, did you do it? Was it your fault? And everyone said, no, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. I was just following orders. It was a person above me. And so they kept going up levels. Okay, well, what, what about you? Did you do it? Is it your fault? No, no, I didn't do it. It's not my fault. It's a person above me. And they start working through all these characters and all these scenes. And finally it dawns on everyone that it actually wasn't our fault. We're gonna go all the way to the top of the food chain. It's God's fault. We're gonna blame him. And so the play ends with these words. And so God was sentenced to become a human being, a wanderer on the earth, deprived of his rights, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He will lose a son and suffer the agonies of fatherhood. And when at last he dies, he shall be disgraced and ridiculed. And all that's true. The play got it right, but they got it right for all the wrong reasons. Yes, Jesus was ridiculed. Yes, he was sentenced to walk the earth. He wandered, he was homeless, he was humiliated, but not because he caused the evil. He suffered all those things in order to answer it so that our current circumstances and the pains and the evil and the sin and the injustice of the world, they don't go unanswered, but instead they are defeated because he descends to the earth, he descends into death, he descends into hell, and he raises from it yet again to celebrate and to give to us the hope and the promise of new life. So we go all the way back to where we started at the beginning and we ask ourselves, is this dependable? Can I trust it? Can I have confidence in it? Is it consistent? Is it authentic? Can I depend? on Jesus Christ, all of that depends on what you make of Easter morning because when you believe in the resurrection, when you look at the evidence for it, everything begins to change and transform within you, not only how you look at your present, but how you promise and look and perceive your future and the hope that it gives you today. Now you're ready for your part? So Tony Campolo tells probably the greatest Easter story of all time. Grew up in a in a nearly all black church where they had these all day kind of preaching revival services, right? And Tony Campolo grows up, becomes a pretty well-known professor at Eastern University and they invite him to come preach in one of these services. And Campolo said, he preached towards the end of the day and he said, man, I was good. He said, I was so good, I was taking notes on me. And he said, I came to the end of my thing and everybody just erupted into applause. I mean, I shook the roof on that spot. And so he's getting his notes up and he gets out of the pulpit. Well, the pastor of the church is the last one to preach and he passes them. And as they pass, he looks at Campolo and says, well, you did all right, boy. And Campolo was kind of full of himself. And he said, well, preacher, you think you can top that? And that preacher said, oh, son, 
son. Just you sit back and you watch. And he said for the next 90 minutes, that pastor lifted the roof off that sanctuary with just one phrase, one phrase. It's Friday, Sunday's coming. All right, hang with me now. It's Friday, Jesus is dead on a tree. The sky is dark and threatening. The earth is trembling, but that's because it's Friday. It's Friday, Mary's crying her eyes out. The disciples have all scattered like sheep without a shepherd, but that's because it's Friday. It's Friday, Satan's dancing his little jig as he thinks he rules the world. Evil's on the loose, pain fills the human heart, but all that's because it's Friday. It's Friday, people say, oh, there is no God. I'm the one who decides what's true. I'll make the decisions. So everybody's just doing what's right in their own eyes because it's Friday. It's Friday, marriages and families are being torn apart. Children are being exposed to things long before they're emotionally ready. Drugs and alcohol running rampant. Depression and anxiety are on the rise. The suicide rate is rising. Violence and bloodshed are on our streets and in our schools, in our workplaces, in our marketplaces. But that is because it's Friday. It's Friday and there are diseases that still stalk the people that we love like cancer and heart disease and strokes and dementia and cars crash and fires burn and storms rage and hurricanes blow and even the people that we pray will be healed, they still die because that's Friday. But it's Friday, people. It's Friday, Russia's invaded the Ukraine. There are atrocities happening every day. There are women and freedom fighters in Afghanistan who are still being, being hurt and suffering. There's drought and famine and plagues around the world that threaten our youngest generation. But that's because it's Friday. And he went on like that for an hour back and forth. It's Friday. Sunny's coming Friday. Sunny's coming until finally he got so tired the way I feel right now. That he got to the end of his message, he just gave it all he had, and he said, it's Friday, and the whole congregation yelled back, And that's the hope of Easter. That's the promise of the empty tomb, that Sunday does come, so it changes our Friday. We live in the midst of difficult circumstances. Yes, we have questions. Yes, we're confused. Yes, our loved ones still die, but what do we know? We know that Jesus came and he died to overcome those things, and they'll never defeat you. They'll be redeemed, and you'll be lifted up, and God will be present in this moment and unto eternity, and so we celebrate, and we look to one thing, and one thing only. Behold the lamb who was slain and who has been raised to the right hand of God the Father. He is authentic and he is real. And may we put our trust in him today. Let's pray.